whatever they are, are really meant for your reflection. They're not meant as something that's dogmatic or this is the way it is. Um, nobody has the corner on the way it is. <laughs> Although some people might like you to think so. <laughs> and tonight, um, because we are doing this benefit for the Shugsep uh, Nunnery, um, in honor of this benefit and in honor of these nuns, um, I wanted to talk about the feminine in Buddhism a bit. Here's a guy doing that, so you'll just have to kind of, you know, cut me a little slack. <laughs> um, and as, as I do, and I'm going to tell some stories, and there'll be a little bit of a history. Often I like to give talks that are more directly related to your um, meditative and contemplative practice. But I think this will tie into it as, as we go along, and once I get there, anyway. And part of the thing to begin with, part of the teaching that I'd like you to reflect about, is the mystery of incarnation. I mean, in India, when you meet someone and you put your hands together and say namaste, and as we've said in so many Monday nights, the meaning of this greeting is, I honor the divine within you or the spirit behind all of the costumes of clothes and body and so forth, who, who, who you really are behind all that. That may be so, but we take incarnation into these unique forms, and no one has ever had an incarnation quite like yours, which is quite phenomenal considering how many people there are. But still, we're so unique. And one of the great mysteries of incarnation is masculine and feminine, is male and female. Um, when you read the Buddhist text uh, descriptions of the great elements of earth, air, and fire, and water, and color, and, and uh, odor, and so forth, one of the 28 elemental qualities is the quality of masculine and feminine. Now, I'm not going to explain it, <laughs> because it is mysterious. I mean, I don't know, especially since I'm going to be talking about the feminine. Um, I'll say this about my beloved wife, Liana, um, with whom I have lived and more or less and been in relationship for almost 30 years. She's still quite a mystery to me. <laughs> and it's part of, I mean, sometimes it's alarming or frustrating, but mostly it's part of what makes it so alive and genuine and real. I mean, she's a very deep and amazing being, um, and I can't figure her out at all. <laughs> and, um, and I love the feminine, and I love women, and it was an interesting thing. 25 years ago, I, I started attending and then teaching men's retreats. And one of the things I noticed when I first started to attend and then to teach men's retreats is that there were certain ways in which I was more comfortable talking with and being with women than I was with men. Um, and a lot of guys said that. Which was a, I said, I mean, guys would stand up and say, I haven't been with men in this way where we actually, you know, were together and talking about um, our lives and so forth. Mostly I haven't been with a group of men since, like, the locker rooms in college or high school or sporting events, you know, or some business deal, um, and often there was a kind of initial discomfort, like, okay, got when guys get together, how are we going to do this, right? <laughs> Put your hands out, no weapons, all right, let's see. <laughs> because there is, there's, there's the competitions and fears and homophobia and all the things like that. It turned out, and starting 25 years ago, that I loved being with men, and that the kind of depth of conversation and feeling and understanding that were revealed and opened up in the men's retreats was, was and is absolutely beautiful. Um, but there is this dance that we participate in as we incarnate and come into this particular planet and this particular human form um, of masculine and feminine. And the dance itself, this mysterious dance, is intrinsic to the process of awakening. The, there's the deepest relationship between masculine and feminine in the Buddhist um, cosmology and teachings. 
So a few little stories. I'm going to have a series of stories tonight. In the great myth of the Buddha's enlightenment, you think he did it himself, right? I, the Buddha, got enlightened. And it's a sort of a guy thing. I sat under a tree. I resolved I'm not going to move until I'm enlightened and, you know, all that stuff. But it happens that at the very last moment of his struggles, Mara, the Indian name for the god who represents or the archetypal forces of, of temptation and aggression and difficulty and evil and all those things, Mara came and attacked the Buddha under the Bodhi tree in all these ways. And the Buddha was able to sit there in the face of temptation and face of aggression, be unmoving and compassionate. And finally, Mara said, um, assailed the Buddha with the last of the great difficulties, which was the difficulty of doubt. Who do you think you are? What right do you have to sit here on this earth and be awakened, be liberated, be get enlightened? And at that last moment, the last attack, if you will, of Mara, the Buddha took one hand, as is so in this um, statue behind me, but you can't see it, but um, you're probably used to seeing it anyway, to put one hand down to touch the earth. Um, and in touching the earth with his hand, he said, the earth is my witness. And he called on the goddess of the earth to arise and bear witness to his many, many lifetimes of practices of patience and generosity and truthfulness and dedication and, and, and so forth. And the goddess of the earth rose out of the earth and from her hair came a flood of water that flooded away the armies of Mara and the Buddha was able to sit and become enlightened. And in the center of Bangkok, by the, near the royal palace, there's the great plowing grounds, the Pramain grounds, and, and a beautiful statue right next to it with a fountain of the earth goddess and, um, and her hair all in stone, except there's a, a kind of a pipe through it so that this fountain of water gushes out of her hair. And she does that perennially, kind of bringing the blessings of the earth to the plowing grounds outside of the Grand Palace in Bangkok. And what this speaks about is that in the last moment, in the last struggle, if you will, of the Buddhas to come to realization, it couldn't be done by his own effort. It couldn't be done by overcoming and battling and, you know, in relationship and to the aggression and temptations of Mara. Finally, the Buddha had to stop all struggle and shift from that masculine mode, if you will, to the feminine, to the ground of the feminine, and ask that the feminine itself, the surrender uh, of the earth herself, make the ground from which his enlightenment could arise. And there's another parallel story in in the great myth of the Buddha, that happened a little earlier um, after he had done the six years of ascetic practice that are part of his preparation for enlightenment and starved himself and beds of nails and all those things trying to conquer himself. And finally he got so frail and thin and weak from all these ascetic practices. He said, well, I've tried to do this, but I still, they still haven't enlightened me. And he was lying there almost dead. And then he remembered in this state of nearly nearly dying, he remembered a spring morning when he was a young man leaning against a rose apple tree, seated under a rose apple tree in his father's garden for the spring plowing. And he said, there I was sitting and there arose all unbidden a sense of peace and stillness and steadiness and wholeness and contentment that didn't require any struggle or any fighting against the world, but that was innate and natural. And when he remembered this, he said, hmm, I think maybe I've been doing this all wrong for these last years of ascetic practice and beds of nails and starving myself. I think maybe, as the Dalai Lama would say, hmm, middle way, middle path, you know, <laughs> there, is some, there is some possibility of, not, of neither capitulating, but on the other hand, not struggling against life. And it was in that moment that he discovered the wisdom of the middle path. And again, the rose apple tree and the earth on which he sat, all symbols of the shift to 
the embrace of her, being held by the feminine. So they're really woven together in the story of the Buddha's enlightenment, but that, what that means is that archetypally they're woven together in your story of enlightenment and in your awakening. Now there's a kind of, I don't know, vague definitions that I might give of masculine and feminine only because it's hard to point to them. Um, and I did a little bit of research, you know, Googled and looked in the Jungian things and in the various archetypal literature and in other kind of psychological things and mythological. And I don't want to stereotype masculine and feminine as men and women because each of us carries these energies. And so it's not men and women, it's really the energies of masculine and feminine. So I'll say some things, um, and they're not that accurate, but... Um, <laughs> They point towards something. The masculine principle, action, activity, rationality, um, power, power over, doing, um, you know, the guy thing, right? But it's not just men. We all have that. And the feminine principle of um, uh, being rather than doing, of interconnection, of tending, of birthing, of creativity, of relating, of... of uh, birthing of um, of being a ground of connectedness rather than trying to change or modify or make something resting in the reality and having what comes uh, to life come from that ground as was so in those those uh, myths or stories I read Maybe this gives a little sense of it. I interviewed a, um, a nun, who I, a Catholic nun, who um, was, is who's a quite well-known spiritual teacher. And she talked about this bout she had with um, cancer, a serious bout. She said, a large tumor was removed, and with it all that I had clung to as certainties in my life. I quit my work, I stopped spiritual teaching, and I turned to anything that I thought might help me change what had led to the cancer, from acupuncture to depth therapy. I became humble before the body. That was 15 years ago, and I can now say that that was the biggest turning point or awakening in my whole spiritual life. I had used my body to practice and teach, but now I had to inhabit it, to respect it and love it with all the feminine force and nurturing and understanding I had withdrawn into an unworldly spiritual life. Just a little bit of the language of that. And it seems terribly important to tease apart the, the roles that men and women play or our masculine and feminine incarnations or the ways that they're used, patriarchy and matriarchy, from the energies of masculine and feminine that we have within ourselves. And there are different levels to it. On one level, there is no masculine and feminine. At, the, at a certain level of the teachings of the Dharma, which means the truth or the underlying reality, there's no self and no other and no man and no woman. Um, and that these are just forms. And there's a dance of incarnation and spirit of form and emptiness and a, and a kind of luminosity of consciousness that shines through these forms. and. Um, from that perspective, um, we're really all the same. We are one, and this is just kind of like, you know, costumes that we wear. And so if you go to certain Buddhist teachings, they'll say, no self, no other, no man, no woman, no birth, no death, and so forth. Um, and it's absolutely true. However, I remember the first year at uh, Naropa Buddhist University in 1974, a number of us were teaching starting the faculty of that, with Chogyam Trimpa Rinpoche, who was at the head, and Ram Dass, and some thousands of people in Boulder, Colorado. And I remember going to some faculty meetings toward the end of that summer, and we were talking about this very topic. And uh, some of the women on the faculty were a little bit upset because of the way the school was being run, which was rather top-down, patriarchal, take orders from the the administration and the, the, the kind of the guys who are running it and it 
you know, it was, that was the way it was being run. And so there was this whole little kind of uprising, which was also fitting for that time, if not still fitting. Um, and there we were, there's Trumpa and Ramdas and the various spiritual teachers. And so all this came from a group of the women on the faculty. And I remember Trumpa sitting there and saying, but in the Dharma, there is no male and no female. It is just a play of energy in the deepest level, no self and no other. And why are you making such a fuss about it? And then a friend of mine, Mirabai Bush, um, sat up and smiled and said, well, we're not exactly making a fuss. We're simply observing that if there's no difference, why is it that all the positions of power seem to be occupied by men and none of them by women? Could you please explain that to us? And Chogyam um, Trumpa had to kind of draw a breath and say, hmm, I think that even though there's no male and no female, there is male and there is female. And uh, there, there started a dialogue, at first a conflict, which I thought was pretty interesting, um, and then a dialogue um, about what would it mean to take a tradition that's been actually quite patriarchal um, and begin to transform the form of it. You know, okay, forget about emptiness, or don't forget about emptiness, recognize emptiness, but also recognize form. Um, and that meant changing the language. The texts were all translated as he this and he that. You know, and how does it feel there when you're sitting and hearing about he this and he that if you're not a he? You know, it's the same for the other kinds of diversity. If you're a person of color and everything that's, that's spoken about seems to speak to the experience of European-American experience or, or whatever, it's as if the Dharma doesn't include you. Um, and to be quite honest about it, because I think it's helpful for our times to know it, not just in Buddhism, but as a, as a reflection. The Buddhist tradition of the last 2,500 years in Asia has been seriously and largely and um, grossly, I think is a fair adjective, patriarchal. It's just the way that it's been. Men on top and women cooking, basically. You know, or worse than that, all the opportunities and all so forth were, are given to the men. And so a story I've told before, but again, seems to be important. And these, this, these reflections, are, I, I want to say again, are in honor of, of, the, of the nuns that we're helping to support tonight. And I'll say a little more about them as we go along. But in 1993, I was the moderator of a Buddhist teacher's meeting international teachers meeting in Dharamsala with the Dalai Lama and about 25 or 30 very well-known, mostly Western teachers, but a few great Asian masters, teachers as well. Um, and we, there we were sitting in the Dalai Lama's home in the living room in his palace. Sylvia Borstein was there, a bunch of other various well-known Buddhist teachers. Um, and this topic came up. Uh, and first, uh, Ani Pema uh, Tenzin Palmo, um, who was a, in a cave for 12 years, this very wonderful Buddhist nun who knows the Dalai Lama some, um, spoke. And she said, Your Holiness, I just want to tell you, for, I spent these 12 years in a cave, as you know, but I was also at this monastery and this one and this one. Um, uh, actually, before she spoke, some people were raising the question of the role of women and how things were being done in Buddhist temples and so forth and how hard it was. And the Dalai Lama was listening and kind of sympathetic. And then Ani Tenzin Palmo said, well, let me give you some details. And she sort of went down the list and said, I was at this temple and that one. And the men had the food and the men had the teachings and the women were outside the walls and they didn't have food and they didn't have anyone to teach them and they weren't necessarily literate. And she went on and on. She didn't stop until finally the Dalai Lama put his head in his hands and he started to cry. And he said, I didn't know it was that bad. I must do something. I will do what I can. It was very, very moving. Um, and that wasn't enough. Then Sylvia Wetzel stood up. Sylvia Wetzel from, from uh, Berlin, who is a, another Dharma teacher with a, like Ani Tenzin Palma, with a considerable chutzpah. Um, and she said, well, Your Holiness, I think um, that there's a way to help you understand this more fully. 
Um, and there was a Dalai Lama with about six or eight of the most senior Tibetan lamas around him. She said, if, if you don't mind, Your Holiness, I'd like to teach you a new visualization practice. And everyone kind of looking, okay, you're going to teach visualization to the Dalai Lama. All right. And he said, sure, okay, you know, because he's a pretty game fellow. And I said, all right. So she said, I would like you to all close your eyes and picture us. Close your eyes and we'll do a visualization. So we're all sitting there meditating. He said, I would like you now to imagine that you have left this room and re-entered it and there's been one small change. Because as you come into this beautifully appointed room, just as we have seen it, everything's the same except that in the front is the 14th Dakini Dalai Lama who always appears in a female body because the feminine body is the best form within which to realize and teach enlightenment. And even though he could incarnate as a male, he always incarnates, she always incarnates as a female. And surrounding her are all the great heads of the traditions, the great lamas, who are also females, even though they could incarnate as males, but they choose female bodies because it has a better expression of teaching. And then these beautiful tanka paintings that are on the walls that surrounded this room, you know, the amazing paintings. If you look, all the bodhisattvas and the 16 arhats, which were all guys, you look and, oh, they're all females. How interesting. Because the feminine form, of course, is um, the best way to incarnate, to express awakening. She said, now, as you, I want you to visualize and understand that it's perfectly fine for men to get enlightened as well, um, but we wouldn't mind if they would sit in the back a little bit and help with the cooking afterward, you know. And look at this room and feel what it's like. And um, so she went on with that visualization for a while, and then she rang the bell at the end. And these guys opened their eyes, and I, they didn't know what hit them, really. It was just great. It was a beautiful moment. Um, because she got them using their very own practices <laughs> to see from a different perspective. Truthfully, throughout the millennia, and now when you go to Thailand and Burma and Tibet and all of these places, um, there's an enormous number of women who are devoted practitioners. And the temples actually are filled with women. Um, I mean, the way that it's done. They often do it with a great deal of modesty. The guys kind of get up there in front and, you know, wave their arms as I'm doing and stuff like that. And the women are the ones that really support and run and make everything of the temple actually uh, operate in the most beautiful way. Um, and given... And with this kind of modesty, given even a half a chance, there's this tremendous cadre of women who are devoted to practice. Um, so one of my favorite story, Buddhist stories is about Ananda, who was the cousin and attendant to the Buddha, and known for his um, sweet, and if you could say, almost his feminine disposition and intuition, and Ananda was sent by the Buddha on a task and passed by a well at a village and saw a young woman named Pakati who was uh, an outcast, an untouchable, and asked her, please, for water to drink. And Pakati said, Oh, great monk, I am too lowly born to give you water to drink. And if you're an untouchable in India, even now in, in rural places, you can't even let your shadow fall upon the shadow of somebody who's born into a higher caste or you poison and pollute them and they might kill you or they, you know, throw you out of the village. And so it's, it's really horrible. I'm too lowly born to give you water to drink. Do not ask anything of me lest your holiness be contaminated by my being for I am an untouchable. And Ananda looked back at her and said, I did not ask for your caste but for water please. And the woman's heart leapt joyfully, and she gave Ananda water to drink. And Ananda thanked her and went away. But she followed him at a distance, and having heard that he was a disciple of the Buddha, went to the Blessed One and said, Help me to live in a place where your disciple Ananda dwells, that I may see him and minister to him, for I have come to love Ananda. And the Buddha understood her emotions and said, Pakati, 
Your heart is full of love, but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Accept then the kindness you have seen him practice toward you and offer it to others. And though you may have been born as an outcast, you will be a model for the nobility of the land, that you, with your own good heart, you will outshine the royal glory of the kings and queens of India. And so the Buddha, in many, many ways, said not by birth or caste or gender or, you know, whatever it is that we might outwardly say by race or class is one noble, but by the quality of heart, by the compassion and the care and the understanding, the nobility of heart is what makes someone noble. So given half a chance, even a little chance, the, the women in the Buddhist world just shine. But modesty is only half of it. Because if you read as well the Terigata, which are the tales of the early nuns, um, the songs of the nuns, um, they're filled with these breathtaking descriptions of enlightenment and liberation. You know, And sometimes a woman will say, free at last, free from the household, free from the dishes, free from the constraints of the family. First that liberation, and now the liberation of the heart. And it's hard to tell which enlightenment was better, actually, just getting out of, getting out of the drudgery or getting out of you know, samsara or whatever it was. Free woman be free as the moon is freed from the eclipse of the sun. With a free mind and heart, enjoy what the earth has given to you. Let go of any tendency to judge yourself above or below or equal to others. The nun who has such self-awareness and integrity will find the peace that never ends. Be full with all good things like the great full moon, full of wisdom and open beyond the great darkness. I, a nun trained and self-composed, entered peace like an arrow, the elements of body and mind grew silent, and the great happiness came upon me. Everywhere clinging is destroyed, the great dark is torn apart, death too destroyed, and what remains shines and luminous, shines in illumination. And there's this whole set of poems and verses of the Enlightenment stories of the nuns. Now, uh, some time ago, last year, I did an evening of teaching, I did some teaching with Marion Woodman, great, wonderful Jungian elder, and Martin Kolf, who's a Buddhist scholar and a, was a monk with the Dalai Lama. And Martin showed a series of slides about the feminine in Buddhism. And it showed the earliest stupas, the earliest Buddhist art, this great stupa or pagoda at Sanchi or the ones at Kusinara. And there the feminine was depicted on the gates outside. The, 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 the depictions of the, of the inner temple were all masculine, and the, the devas and goddesses and, or, or worldly women were out on the gates. And then he flashed forward a couple of hundred years to show the great caves of Ajanta and Alora. And there you saw in these carvings and paintings the Buddhas. But now the, the female figures were not on the gates. They were actually underneath the images of the Buddha, like they were pushing up from the earth. They'd been down on the earth long enough, and now the Buddhas were resting on these images of, of the feminine and of the women. And then he fast-forwarded a couple of hundred years to some other Mahayana temples, and pretty soon there was, the, there was Mr. and Mrs. Buddha, basically. There was the Buddha, you know, and Kuan Yin, or not Kuan Yin, but whatever the particular goddess or form was next to. And they sort of started to take their place. Then there were the tantric embrace figures, and finally, there were the temples in the end that were clearly the representation of the divine feminine of Prajnaparamita, who is the mother of all Buddhas and the, 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 the representation of, of wisdom herself. She is Sophia. She is timeless wisdom. She is the, the, the wisdom that gives birth to all understanding. And then all these other figures like Tara, who said that she would become a Buddha as she did but only in the feminine form, because it was, in fact, the right and best form for enlightenment and awakening. 
which is to say that you can get enlightened in the body that you have. Whatever body you have is the perfect and right body for enlightenment, for awakening, and for liberation. And that's really where all these teachings are pointing. Now, it goes even further than that, from modesty to what I might call the immodest. Um, my teacher, for example, Deepama, who is this very great yogi in India, that one of the greatest yoginis of our tradition in India, she had all these amazing powers, or so her teacher, who I also studied with, told me she could you know, be in two places at once and visit other things and make her body appear and disappear. And he said, I even put a potato in her hand one day and had her cook it with a fire of a particular samadhi jhana state because she was doing fire practice and handed it back to me. Here it's like microwave. Here you are. To, um, how well done would you like it? I never saw her do it. I really am so sorry that she didn't. That she, I asked her, you know, about, she said, no, no, I haven't done that for some years. Now it would take me, I'd have to practice to get those powers back. How long would you have to practice? Oh, a few days. I'm sorry. It's long. But anyway, but what I will say about Deepama, I went to see her one time in Calcutta early on in my teaching career, and I was having a very hard time. I'd been in India and studying in Bodh Gaya, and I had, a, um, I had to go through Calcutta to get a plane, and I had an extra day to go visit, visit her. And it was hot season in Calcutta. It was sticky and 100 and you know, five degrees and incredibly noisy. And, but when I went to her, her apartment was like this oasis of peace. And I'd been having a hard time in my personal relations at that time. And with my body, I'd, I'd been, I don't know where I had been. Maybe I'd been helping Gosananda in the Cambodian refugee camps or something. And I was really sick. And I just didn't think I could keep teaching. And I wasn't sure I was very good at it. And all these doubts and everything. And she sat me down and kind of took care of me, fed me for a bit, gave me some really beautiful teachings, and then it was time to go. And she said, I think you need a blessing. And Deepama was about half my height. I mean, she's this tiny little woman with incredible yogic power. So she came over, and, you know, and I got on my knees, which made me about the same height as her. And she started to just pat my body and whisper these prayers of metta, of loving kindness. You know, and I thought, well, this is nice. It's nice to get a little blessing and, you know, <laughs> prayers of loving kindness. And then she did a little bit more and a little bit more, you know. And ten minutes, which felt like a pretty long time. And then she said, go, you can teach, you do understand, carry the Dharma, you know, you'll be fine. And I walked out of there smiling, grinning. And I went, it was about an hour through the hot Calcutta honking and beeping and traffic and cows and all the things to get to Dum Dum Airport, which is the name of the Calcutta Airport. It is, <laughs> seriously. And then, you know, three or four hours of customs and waiting and heat and going through the bags and then getting this flight. I don't know, I was on like Bangladeshi Airlines, you know, saving I was, you know, and then flying and stopping in Dhaka and then going to Bangkok and then going through the customs at Bangkok and then going through all the Bangkok traffic to this hotel, hours, and you know, in the hot season, the entire way, I am grinning from ear to ear. I am just completely stoned, you know. It lasted for three days. I just couldn't stop smiling. She not only kind of did there, there, you know, may you be happy, but she did it with all these kind of yogic powers as well, and I was like, whoa, something really hit me. So somebody, there was a great interview with Deepama for the... Um, for our Buddhist community that was done, and also a friend at Harvard who was studying the yogis of India. Um, and uh, um, anyway, at one point her teacher Manindra was there, and at some point he talked about how in the Buddhist, they were talking about masculine and feminine, and how in the Buddhist tradition, it said in the Theravada tradition <clears throat> that to become a fully enlightened Buddha, one should be born in a, in a male body. That's one of the teachings. And Deepama just looked over at her teacher and said, I can do anything that a man can do, thank you. you know, and her teacher said, yes, ma'am, you know, because she could. She was really quite extraordinary. Um, and the lineage of the Shugsep Anuns that we are uh, supporting tonight um, is the lineage of the Chud practice, which is, one, of, as I said, one of the great feminine lineages of Tibet that's been carried for, for hundreds of years, hundreds and hundreds of years. 
And these are women, you know, who were imprisoned and tortured. And when they got, you know, over the Himalayas and walked over the Himalayas, they said, what I want to do is my spiritual practice. I mean, incredible spirit. So it's not just the modesty that's on one side, but on the other side is this, is this incredible force of the feminine. This is from Nikki Giovanni, who is a wonderful poet, um, maybe that describes the feminine in a different way. She writes, I was born in the Congo, walked to the Fertile Crescent and built the Sphinx. I designed a pyramid so tough that a star that only glows every hundred years falls into the center giving divine perfect light. I am bad. I sat on the throne drinking nectar with Allah. I got hot and sent an ice age to Europe to control my thirst. My oldest daughter is Nefertiti. The tears from my birth pains created the Nile. I am a beautiful woman. I gazed on the forest and burned out the Sahara Desert. I crossed it in two hours. I am a gazelle so swift you can't catch me. For a birthday present when he was three, I gave my son Hannibal an elephant. He gave me Rome for Mother's Day. My strength flows on. My son Noah built an ark, and I stood proudly at the helm as we sailed on a soft summer day. I turned myself into myself and was Jesus, all in tone my loving name. I am the one who would save. I sewed diamonds in my backyard. My bowels deliver uranium. The filings from my fingernails are semi-precious jewels. On a trip north, I caught a cold and blew my nose, giving oil to the Arab world. I am so hip that my errors are correct. I sailed west to reach east and then had to round off the earth as I went. The hair from my head thinned and gold was laid across three continents. I am so perfect, so divine, so ethereal, so surreal that I cannot be comprehended except by my permission. I mean, I can fly like a bird in the endless sky. And I think about the Shugsep nuns who were so fearlessly committed to liberation. They got over the Himalayas, the highest mountains on earth, sometimes with rags on their feet, and said, I want to see the Dalai Lama. That was their first thing. I want to get blessings from, the, from, from His Holiness, and I want a place to practice and to be enlightened, to bring that, carry that light in the world. Now, we might say, what does this have to do with us here in the West now? Well, first, of course, there's the outer level of representation, how incredibly painful it is to be left out. Whether you're in a community, whether you're, you know, you're gay in a community or a place where you're not accepted, or whether it's by caste or race, or whatever it happens to be that disenfranchises you. Um, I remember the first women's retreats that we organized after a couple of years of teaching meditation retreats around the country. And from what I heard, I mind you, I certainly didn't attend. From what I heard, there was this great big sigh of happiness of the women who came into a circle in that room and said, oh, it's us. We can talk, we can share, we can listen in ways that couldn't have happened um, in the mixed retreats and in the silence and with the men that were there. And there's a way in which we are on the outer level integrating the Dharma into our lives as lay people, unlike what's been done in Asia, making it more democratic. Um, it's not patriarchal in the same way here. There's a council of teachers that are half men and half women. We have so many women teachers now and in the new teacher training there are many more women than men. That's the outer level. There's the archetypal level. You notice on the altar that there's Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion, and the Buddha in the archetypal earth witness mudra. Um, and I had a visit uh, a year or two, a couple years ago, from this Burmese woman who was a very wealthy and kind of um, uh, part of the Burmese uh, upper class and aristocracy, and she came because her daughter had come to Spirit Rock when she was studying it in the U.S. And I took her around and talked about my teachers in Burma and the teachers we'd brought here and showed her the retreat hall and all the things that, you know, are in many ways like practice in Asia. And she was appreciative and very gracious. And then I talked to her daughter afterward. I said, how did your mom 
like Spirit Rock. And she said, well, she liked it okay, but she said it really wasn't a Buddhist center. And I said, oh, why is that? She said, well, because you had a woman on the altar. And in her mind, that meant it wasn't the real thing. Guess what? <laughs> it's changing. <laughs> She'll find out, you know. Um, so that's the outer. That's the outer. And it, it has served our community so uh, beautifully to start with Joseph and Sharon Salzberg and Jacqueline Mandel and myself, to start with teams of men and women from the very beginning. It's just made it different. But more deeply for all of us, there is this inner balance. And we tended to start, because I trained as a young man in these forest monasteries, and I was going to do the whole ascetic thing, and we would sit up all night, um, you know, and we did one meal a day from our bowl, and, you know, who can walk the longest alms round bare feet in the hot season and just take this little bit of food, and, you know, who can be the toughest and sit the longest without moving? There's the whole warrior prince thing that the Buddha did, um, and it was a kind of, you know, young man's initiation thing, which I've talked about here, um, striving and accomplishing and purifying and the mind and all of that, and it was wonderful. A lot of beautiful things happened from that. It's not, there's nothing... Um, wrong with it, it has its place. But it doesn't have its place so well in, the, in an integrated pre- presentation of Dharma. And because what happened when we brought that back to this culture is that all of the unworthiness and striving and ambition that's, that's part of the sickness of Western culture got mixed up with the Dharma. I'm going to get enlightened and I'm going to do it before the other people around me. Maybe not quite that bad, but people would sit on retreat and they'd be comparing themselves to an ideal and struggling and striving. And instead of the warrior principle, the heroic, you know, when I talk about sitting for days and not moving, I think about my wife. She um, was in labor for three days to give birth to our daughter Caroline Um, because even though um, all these uh, contractions came, Caroline's head, um, my daughter's head, um, wasn't quite seated right. And so the contractions happened, but her cervix wouldn't dilate. And so I remember, you know, 12 hours of incredible labor, and we went to the hospital, and they said, ah, you're dilated like one centimeter, go home, you know, and another 12, 14 hours, and go back, okay, two centimeters, go home. Two days, three days, and nights, you know, and we're both falling asleep between contractions. I'm trying to stay up and breathe with her, and I say, breathe. All I'm doing is breathing. She's going doing this whole incredible thing. And after three days and nights, finally, you know, her head was engaged, right cervix dilated, and, and, and my daughter, my, was, my beautiful daughter Caroline, was born. And I think about all the ascetic practices that I did, and you know, three days of this. I mean, maybe it's just because we can't have kids as men, we don't have babies, you know, or something. But it, it was such a different initiation, um, and, and so powerful. And the feminine principle of connectedness, and surrender, and trust, and openness, and relatedness. Um, And I believe that for us to deepen in meditation practice, we really have to listen to both of these dimensions of ourself. There are times when it's important to take a vow and sit and not move. You know, there's times when it's important to take a a vow of one's virtue, of the truthfulness or the or the unshakability of care or the compassion that you will act from no matter what happens. Um, but there are also times for trust and surrender and letting go and opening. And so much of the way that we initially taught with all this striving has now been tempered in these decades, three, uh, three, 30 years or more of teaching, with the flavor of loving kindness, of compassion for oneself, of trusting oneself, of trusting your own heart and your own goodness and your own realization and that where you're going is not to get someplace or make yourself better or be pure or improve yourself, but actually to love what is and find a freedom in the midst of it all. To rest in the one who knows that has this beautiful knowledge that is both feminine and masculine, 
and combines them both. And some people then might say, well, yeah, but isn't the feminine sort of the weak side? <laughs> and there's a story um, of Ramakrishna, the great Indian saint and sage, who sat along the Ganges River um, for um, his place of practice and meditation for years and years. And he was a great ecstatic and a great, um, really quite an amazing master. And his, his devotion was to um, the, the divine feminine, to the goddess, to the awakened feminine, if you will, in a variety of forms that, that are worshipped in India. And he would practice and chant and pray, and he had this you know, incredible great heart. And one of his prayers was, may, may it be revealed to me the mystery of the feminine, the mystery of the goddess, the mystery of that which gives birth to all things. So as Ramakrishna's story is told, one day he was sitting by the banks of the Ganges River, and all of a sudden out of the water came this amazing figure of a goddess. Water streaming off of her, this huge feminine figure with great dark eyes and long dark hair, all the water streaming off her, and she looked right into his eyes. And as she came up out of the water, um, water dripping over her naked body, she opened her legs, and out of her poured the birth of all that is. All the creativity came out of her. She was like the, the womb of creation. The, the word in the Buddhist tradition is Tathagatagarbha, the, the, the womb of the Buddha, the womb of the Buddhas that gives birth to all things. So there she was. Um, and, you know, Ramakrishna said, this was an amazing vision. Um, and she looked at him. And he could see this incredible birth of all things from the feminine. And then she reached down and took in her hand a couple of babies that were being born and put them in her mouth and started to chew on them crunched them, and the blood started to run down her chin and over her breasts, and she looked Ramakrishna in the eye. She who gives birth to all things, she is, is both the creator and the destroyer, the, the, the cycle of birth and death. She said, if you want to understand the divine feminine, take a look at this. You know? <laughs> and then she sank down beneath the, beneath the waves of the, of the river Ganges. And I don't know what Ramakrishna did, but he did tell the story later. There is, for us, not just in the teachings that we do now, but for us ourselves, for each of you, in your own body, this, this incarnation that you've gotten, the mystery of masculine and feminine, and there is a joy and a freedom and an ease to be found an enlightenment that is yours, that is your own birthright. O nobly born, the Buddhist texts say, do not forget who you really are, who has come into this birth and into this incarnation. And from this place, you are the mother of all things, who is where birth and death arise and pass, and you sit in the middle of it all. You sit like the Buddha touching the earth and say, the earth is my witness to all of this. Um, and you sit like Prajnaparamita or... Kuan Yin, the goddess of infinite compassion, who's depicted here to your left in this great tanka in the form, uh, uh, the feminine form of Avalokiteshvara with a thousand arms, a thousand hands, a thousand eyes, to hear and see the sorrows of the world and a hand to touch with compassion every being that needs help. Um, the expression of that. And, there are really a thousand. My, my daughter, when she was young, came over and counted them one day, so I want to make sure. Um, that you hold within you, this is who you are, that you hold within you both the divine masculine and the divine feminine, the incredible courage to see with clarity the way things are, um, the, the knowing of birth and death that come to you every day and every moment, and the capacity of heart to hold the great heart of compassion, to hold it all and be liberated in its midst. And this dance, um, is it, this is the party to which you are invited. 
when you come and sit and meditate, yes, you feel your breath, you notice the play of thoughts and regrets and plans and, you know, your shopping list and why he did this and she didn't do that and all that stuff. But there's something deeper going on, which is the taking of the seat like the Buddha's masculine and feminine, Tara, Kuan Yin, um, the great bodhisattvas on this earth in this incarnation and bowing and saying, yes, isn't this an amazing dance? And here we are together. And it's possible to awaken this fearlessness and compassion and the knowing that we contain it all, this balance. And you can listen as I speak to you and feel what's needed. Maybe on a certain day or a certain moment, what's needed is that kind of warrior, masculine, I am present for all things in an unshakable way. And maybe what's needed is a surrender and love to say, I can open and trust and rest on her, rest on the earth, and know the play of life and, and sit and dance in the midst of it. And somehow, in our awakening, in your own practice and your own dedication to your spiritual life, whatever form it takes, because you are dedicated, even if you don't know it, it's really too late. I mean, you came in here... And, all, and it is. I mean, you are. What, I mean, what are you going to do? Go back and kind of cultivate greed and hatred and ignorance? You don't really want to do that. It doesn't make for a very happy day, you know. So you are on it. You're in it. You're in the middle of it. Your, your dedication to enlightenment, you're knowing somehow something in you knows who you really are and is awakening. And you contain it all, the joy and the sorrow, the masculine and the feminine. And your dedication to enlightenment is somehow married to the Shugzep nuns, because we're collecting money for them tonight, yes. But it's more than that. Their incredible dedication, which wants to keep the lamp of the Dharma alive. And our practice here is we... um, as we learn to find a new expression of the, of the Buddha's awakening that's more democratic and that's not as patriarchal and that is more an expression of the consciousness that we've come to at this time on the earth. We're really in the same game together and, and we share it in this beautiful way to awaken and transform um, the consciousness of beings on this earth. When Rinchen Khandro came here to do Monday night teaching, she's the sister-in-law of the Dalai Lama, um, a few years ago and talked about the nuns' project. She's also in the Tibetan um, uh, cabinet. She was the minister of education and she had several portfolios. Anyway, I said when she came um, that I would read to her before the end of the evening uh, a terma which in the Tibetan tradition, terma are um, secret texts that are found um, supposedly buried or, or left by the Buddha or great masters in some form or other to be discovered later on. And I wanted to read her a terma that was discovered in, a, in, a, in America rather than in some cave in Tibet. Um, and so she said, okay. You know, so she was sitting back there. And I will read it to you as a, as a way to close um, for tonight. And this is from my good friend Rick Fields. Um, and it's the very short sutra on the meeting of the Buddha and the goddess. Thus I have imagined or envisioned, he says. And most Buddhist texts start this way. Thus I have heard or seen. Thus I have envisioned. Once the Buddha was walking along the forest path in the oak grove at Ojai, walking without arriving anywhere or having any thought of arriving or not arriving. And lotuses shining with the morning dew miraculously appeared under every step, soft as silk beneath the toes of the Buddha. When suddenly, out of the turquoise sky, dancing in front of his half-shut, inward-looking eyes, shimmering like a rainbow or a spider's web, transparent as the dew on a lotus flower, the goddess appeared, quivering like a hummingbird in the air before him. She, for she was surely a she, as the Buddha could clearly see with his eye of discriminating awareness wisdom, was mostly red in color, 
though when the light shifted she flashed like a rainbow. She was naked except for the usual flower ornaments goddesses wear. Her long hair was deep blue, her eyes fathomless pits of space, and her third eye a bloodshot song of fire. The Buddha folded his hands together and greeted the goddess thus. O oh goddess, why are you blocking my path? Before I saw you, I was happily going nowhere. Now I'm not so sure where I go. You can go around me, said the goddess, twirling on her heel like a bird darting away, but just a little way away. Or you can come after me, but you can't pretend I'm not here. This is my forest too. With that, the Buddha sat supple as a snake, solid as a rock beneath a bow tree that sprang full leaf to shade him. Perhaps we should have a chat, he said. After years of arduous practice, at the time of the morning star, I penetrated reality and, not so fast, Buddha, the goddess said, I am reality. The earth stood still, the oceans paused, the wind itself listened, and a thousand arhats, bodhisattvas, and dakinis magically appeared to hear what would happen in the conversation. I know I take my life in my hands, said the Buddha, but I am known as the fearless one, so here goes. And he and the goddess, without further words, exchanged glances. Light rays like sunbeams shot forth so brightly that even Sariputra, the all-seeing one, had to turn away. Then they exchanged thoughts, and the illumination was as bright as a diamond candle, and then they exchanged minds, and there was a great silence as vast as the universe that contains everything. And then they exchanged bodies, and then clothes, and the Buddha arose as the goddess, and the goddess arose as the Buddha, and so on back and forth for a hundred thousand, hundred thousand kalpas. If you meet the Buddha, you meet the goddess. And if you meet the goddess, you meet the Buddha. Not only that, this. The Buddha is emptiness, and the goddess is bliss. And the goddess is emptiness, and the Buddha is bliss. And that is what and what not you are. It's true. So here comes the mantra of the goddess and the Buddha, the unsurpassed non-dual mantra. Just to say this mantra, just to hear this mantra once, just to hear one word of this mantra once makes everything the way that it truly is on this earth. Okay. So here it is. Earthwalker, Skywalker, hey silent one, hey great talker. Not two, not one, neither separate nor apart. This is the heart. Bliss is emptiness. Emptiness is bliss. Form and emptiness. Be your breath. Ah, smile, hey, and relax. Remember, you can't miss. So let's just sit for a minute. What an amazing thing to take incarnation on an earth that has a planet that has masculine and feminine, this dance within us, to have our spirit that knows this dance. So two brief announcements and then a, a one-syllable chant and we'll go out into the uh, 
autumn evening, or almost autumn evening. <laughs>